Welcome to the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast from Ideas to Go. The podcast where we explore what's going on under the radar with non-conscious instincts that trip up innovation and point you to some effective ways around them. Because we want to do the right thing for our customers. We all want innovation to be the big, world-changing thing we hoped it could be. I'm your host, Adam Hansen, and I'll be joined by the best and the brightest in the world of innovation. Come join us in our adventures as we, together, explore how to help you outsmart your instincts. I spy, with my little eye, something beginning with B. Boxes. Right. I spy, with my little eye, something beginning with M. More boxes. Two in a row. And that's when I shot him, Your Honor. I spy with my little eye something beginning with E. I, I, I give up. Oh, come on. It's <laughs> better not be what I... Even, Even more, more boxes. boxes. 95% of the decisions we'll face every day are made so quickly we scarcely think of them as decisions. We just do them. They don't really merit deliberation. They're not that consequential. No one in the family is that jazzed about green beans anyway. So whether they're this brand or that isn't important. I'll spend up to 400 milliseconds on that decision. My criteria, criterion, price, boom, done. Other decisions are only slightly more complex. Here, I'll spend a few seconds and I'll quickly recall what I believe are relevant representative examples from the past that seem enough like this situation. Hey, I'm thinking about it at least. But how relevant are these examples truly? How representative? The very fact that I can pull them up so quickly should alert me to something. What's most available to me isn't pure data. It's skewed. It's a little National Enquirer, a little overly paranoid neighbor. It doesn't care about actual likelihood as much as sensationalism. It's emotional, not statistical. I don't perform a quick regression analysis to determine correlation. I check for what I feel about this, and that's usually okay. Except when it isn't. When it comes to sorting through the considerations for most of our routine decisions, the loosely assembled junk drawer of availability in our head may be more than enough to draw upon. It's amazing what you can do with a little mental duct tape when you're too rushed or too lazy to look for a more sophisticated tool. But the availability bias is more pernicious than improvising with what is available. It also shapes our definition of the world and dramatically limits what we believe is possible within it. As Kahneman explains, we usually operate as if what you see is all there is. Our unique capacity for problem solving works against us when we assume that any problem can be solved by using what we have on hand. As the old adage goes, when all you have is a hammer, everything is treated like a nail. And in many cases, a hammer will do just fine. But the most easily retrievable inputs and memories aren't always the most reliable or representative. Since emotionally charged memories are more vivid, and vivid memories are more easily retrieved, 
emotion trumps reason when the availability bias is in play. For example, brides often buy the first wedding dress they try on because it's the first time they visualize themselves as a bride. That first experience in a wedding dress brings out so many strong emotions that they tend to return to that dress even after trying on other dresses that might have been preferred if the emotion-laden availability bias hadn't short-circuited their decision-making. The metaphor for availability bias is blinders, such as on a horse. We have been the dedicated beasts of burden in high-traffic areas with blinders on to keep us trotting forward. Taking a moment to consider a little more won't steer us into the ditch. Taking just a little more time up front to look at more information, selected in a smart, strategic way, will actually speed up time to market acceptance. Sometimes we need to slow down in order to hurry up to get to the real goal. president of ideas to go and co-author of the book outsmart your instincts beth stores beth welcome thank you adam thank you so much this is great um beth tell me just a little bit what do you enjoy about innovation why did you want to come join the crazy kids at ideas to go well one of the things that i really love about innovation is the ability to create newness and to find new ways to explore and find new things to um, discover and, and create. And specifically, um, working with clients on innovation, watching them figure it out and that, find the cool new thing that they're gonna work on. Isn't that great? That's what it's all about, to see the lights go on in clients' eyes. Yep. I mean, that's that's really what it's all about, right? Yeah. It, it's, uh, we are, many of us are, um, let's face it, a little hammy. I mean, we're there, there's a little bit of a performance instinct in many of us, but ultimately it's about passing the mic to the clients. Yeah, and watching them succeed and achieve and you know, really be able to walk away with something that they can be proud of, but they know that they really worked hard at, yeah. didn't just come to them naturally. They really you know, put a lot of effort into it, but then to walk away with something exciting. Yeah. We kind of joke that a project is a success if at the end of the project people are tired but smiling. Yep. And uh, the good news is we see that regularly, so that feels like we're on track. I had a client once tell us that um, our process was ridiculously comprehensive and he meant it in a positive way. Ridiculously comprehensive. <laughs> so a case in which ridiculously is actually a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. That's cool. All right, so we're talking about availability bias, this idea that regularly we do believe that what we see is all there is, and we actually act as if that were true. So what strikes you most about um, availability bias when you see it pop up in project? Well, um, I think that where it pops up a lot in project is in opportunity discovery and in ideation. And um, what really strikes me is that there's a really big difference between the ideas that 
people come up with when they are succumbing to availability bias. The first thing that pops into their head, they're, you know, interesting, but, you know, kind of just okay. Um, and then once we get into it and start showing people what you can do and the kinds of stimuli that's available and the kinds of exercises that you can do, um, and the ideas just get much more interesting, much more rich, much more innovative, um, and actually, and a lot more thoughtful as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and we we do this throughout our process in ideation, and, and there's a little ex, uh, little exercise that we've been doing lately um, to demonstrate this to clients, where you ask them to change five things about themselves, work with a partner, change five things about themselves visually. And they do it and, you know, people move their watch from one hand to the other or they, you know, pull their hair back. And then you have them do it again and it gets harder. And then you have them do it again. And the third time, the things that they change, they have to work a lot harder, but the things that they change are much more interesting and much more innovative and not less obvious. That's right. And that's kind of how I think it works in ideation when you make an effort to you know, crush the availability bias. That's right, yeah. So what's true about all the cognitive biases is that they are uh, automatic. They're, they are just uh, reflexive. They're the path of least resistance. Um, they were effort-saving hacks that were just kind of built into our core through millennia of, of you know, repeat, repeat, repeat. And they really did serve our ancestors really well, and and they were they were useful for a different time, different place, but by bringing some awareness to them and then some effort. Right. I mean, I feel like availability bias, when you let it happen to yourself, it's just lazy. Yeah. Um, and actually, a lot of the other cognitive biases as well, but particularly availability bias, because I feel like um, you have to really take a take a moment to stop <laughs> and work hard yeah. to make it go away. Yeah. Um, and it can sometimes be, when it happens to you, because it's definitely happened to me, yeah. you're working on something, you think you have an answer, you're like excited about it, and then somebody comes along with another question or another possible <laughs> solution that could happen, and it just kind of, it feels like a little bit of a pain yeah. because you thought you had it. Ah. Um, you know, <laughs> but the fact is, is that it really um, makes you think more yeah. and makes you, you know, open yourself up. And again, it's more effortful, but at the end of the day, you, you know, you wind up with a better solution. Yeah. Um, well, and the fact is, availability bias still today is fine for much of what we do. Yep. I mean, many of the decisions we face every day are, are really so small that we don't even think of them as decisions. I yep. mean, they're, they're super inconsequential. It's just like, okay, just get it done, whatever. You know, we don't have to bring other people in on it. Right. You know, again, they're just, and so um, it's, it's effort saving, and that's great. But there are certainly other decisions, and when we're doing innovation, we do want to be thoughtful yep. because we're trying to create value. And value doesn't come through automaticity, right. right? And so we just, yeah, we want to be a little more reflective, not reflexive. And uh, that's, that's really important. So, um, do, do you have, uh, like, have you seen a funny example of avail availability bias showing up in project? So, I don't know if you would consider this funny or not, but I found it really um, 
interesting and enlightening. And it was a project with a client who shall remain nameless, client group. And um, this particular client um, was having a really hard time accepting the use of stimulus um, <laughs> to come up with new ideas. Um, she just really wasn't engaged, was kind of sitting back, you know, when we, we paired everybody up with creative consumers, sitting back with their arms crossed and kind of like just not really using any of the stimulus and just coming up with ideas. And they were fine ideas, um, but as the time went on, with a little cajoling by me and my co-facilitator, and I think also cajoling by our creative consumers associates that they were working with, um, she got more open to it. Then you could see her lean forward more. You could see her, you know, um, gesturing more during the stimul the, the activities that we were giving them. And then the ideas that she was coming up with were not only better but some really far out ideas, which is great because it's not like they're necessarily going to implement the really, really far out ideas right sure. away, but those ideas are the ones that give the team, you know, even more stimuli to think about and yeah. also, um, you know, the stretch needed to be a little bit more unique. And then obviously when you're ex executing, you might pull back a little bit, but that was just such a transformation. And it was really her not thinking that the activities were really going to do anything because she was just perfectly fine with what she had in front of her, which yeah. was basically, her, you know, the the um, the availability bias kicking in. This is where already I'm regretting that these aren't video podcasts because Beth, as you were telling the story here, and you were mimicking her body language uh, when she was still kind of cold to the concept, she's kind of leaning back in her chair. She's like really like her spine is just adhered <laughs> to the back of her chair but then as she starts to warm up to it she actually yeah. does she starts to come forward yep and and she does become more animated physically and everything yeah and so there really is there's literally an opening yes you know to it yes and as a facilitator that's when you breathe a sigh of relief yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah you see it yeah you absolutely see it the 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 conceptual is replicated in the physical right yeah and you go oh, okay this is this is working so that's 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 what it's all about. It is about increasing that opportunity space. Mm -hmm. So openness really is both physical and a, and a conceptual thing. We're trying to get people to consider things they never would have otherwise. Right. And so then to your point about it being wilder and they're probably not going to go there, but you go there not just because it's fun, but you go there so you can start to have thoughts that you wouldn't have any other way. Yeah. And that's where you can start to get to the uniqueness that's so crucial. Uh, and then that deft combination of uniqueness and relevance is where we really want to land this thing. You want to have thoughts that the competition isn't having. Mm -hmm. You're hoping that the competition isn't making that kind of effort, isn't going through this kind of weirdness you know, in an effort to get there. Well, and on that particular project also at the very end, and I just remembered this, we had all of the ideas ranked based on the votes and we were tagging each of the ideas as to how new they were versus things that were kind of a modification or a slight optimization of something else and the ideas that were higher with higher votes 
were more new. Oh, great. As well. And yeah. I think that really spoke to the team kind of embracing a lot of the excursions that we, that we were doing to really break out of that. Oh, know, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, and then where they have the will as a team to say, yes, it's worth, worth it to us to move these forward and we'll take on the operational challenge. Right. You know, to keep moving this through through to development, uh, because we're interested in having profit in the out years. That's kind of a cool thing. Of course, profit comes from innovation. So cool. All right. Um, the thing that I notice on availability bias is it's it's kind of something that is repeated quite often. Is just like the, the and and you kind of alluded to it. Just this initial discomfort with coming up with examples. Like if we ask for, we'll do often uh, stimulus sheet, like things that are bouncy, mm -hmm. you know, we'll just want to do something like that. And so we'll try to come up with, you know, 30 different things that are bouncy. And people are just like, oh, it's just like so much pressure, ball, I can't think of anything else. Mm -hmm. And they'll, they'll like, think like they're being judged or right. something. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you know, it's a stretch to get to jello. Right. You know, or whatever. You just kind of, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get graded on any of this. Yeah. You know, and so just firing it off and everything, at no point do we actually come back and grade you. Right. You know? I mean, <laughs> we just need stimulus. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. You know, uh, but but soon enough people get the, the hang of it and realize that it really is as, as much as humanly possible a judgment free zone. Mm -hmm. And so, that kind of conservatism of, uh, 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 you know, I'm on the spot or whatever it is, I think really feeds into availability bias. There's, you know, just kind of that, uh, you know, what's the first thing I can grab to? It's going to be, you know, usually availability <laughs> bias ties to some of the most obvious stuff usually. Right. right? And the, the things that are less obvious are more risky. Yeah. And then you're afraid that somebody's going to, you know shoot you down, which takes yeah. us all the way into negativity bias, which you already covered. But, but, you know. but we want the weird stuff. Right. Like I, I want someone to put on a, on, a, uh, on a stim sheet, I want someone to put one that's a head scratcher. That's great. And I don't even need to, you don't get points necessary for the elegance. But the best part about the <laughs> head scratchers is that then each person can take that head scratcher and go in a completely different direction. Precisely. You know. Yeah. So. That's what it's all about. And soon enough they get the hang of it. They start to see what this is and how it's different than a lot of other things that they, they've experienced. So so that's good. All right. Um, so sometimes with availability bias, even when we think we're being deliberate, so we'll take a moment, we'll actually consider, you know, we'll try to get those examples. We're trying to make a decision. Uh, we might kid ourselves into thinking, oh, I am thinking it through because I'm actually trying to dredge up, you know, some of these examples I think are representative for what I'm, you know, what, what's the thing I'm considering now most like. So, hey, I'm actually taking the 30 seconds, mm -hmm. you know, to uh, consider that. Uh, but we're not aware that what we're going to pull up is going to be First of all, it's just more emotionally vivid. We know because of negativity bias that that's going to skew negatively. It's going to kind of go toward the sensational. Uh, and it's just, it really is not going to be representative. And our minds, uh, we're not statisticians. Our minds can't, we're not good, particularly in the moment like that, this whole notion of fast thinking. 
we're not good at assessing likelihoods uh, really and making the distinction between one in a thousand versus one in a million. And we still fear dying in a plane more than dying in a car. And yet we all know that we're more likely to die in a car crash than in a plane, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so how, I mean, how do we, when it comes to innovation, not every decision, even in innovation, are we going to have time to be fully deliberative, uh, take, you know, even a half hour to think things through? I mean, are any... I mean, can, can we give can we give our, our listeners any thoughts on how to maybe even uh, short circuit availability bias just even quickly? I'm I mean, just coming up with this. We didn't talk yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. No, I think, <laughs> I think that. Um, but, but, but what I found interesting actually about what you were saying in the very beginning when you introduced this topic was you you were saying I if I'm thinking and I'm going to the first problem is the I right yeah yeah because even if you think you're trying really hard to get out of that availability bias, it's still what's within you. Correct. Right? So, you know, the first thing is if you could sit down with somebody else and yeah, bring nice. their bring yeah. their perspective into it. And, and whether it's somebody who knows what you're talking about or somebody even better who doesn't know what you're talking about because they could um, just bring a completely new perspective. You just give them the rundown and then hear from them and you don't have to do what they say, but they'll make you think of something differently, right? Yeah. And then the other thing is just, you know, some basic exercises like some of the things that we do in ideation, like role plays and going to different worlds. I mean, just for a moment, even if you could put yourself in somebody else's shoes and write down what they would do, then again, you're not going to take it literally and you're not going to do exactly what they would do, but use that to figure out, well, how might this impact my decision? Yeah, how, how would uh, how would Mr. McConaughey approach this? I, I think of that regularly. If I if I don't do that at least five times a week, it's not a complete week. So Beth and I spoke for a moment here, and actually came up with a case study and uh, said, for example, if we were working on a project that was about customer engagement, new possibilities for customer engagement and we wanted to do a role play, we started playing around with what would be lots of different types of different weird um, places we could go in the role play. And here's some of that. Uh, like what would the Mossad do? Like, you <laughs> the, know, the Pentagon. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And, then, and then figure out how they would handle it. And then you don't take it literally and do it exactly how they would handle it, but you take that... You play with a little bit, and then you figure out now how can I apply that to to yeah. to us. So it's more like what's what's something that um, you know the Pentagon is associated. What's a principle from the Pentagon, or what's what is even just something that is uh, that I associate with the Pentagon that right. I can now bring back and force associate with uh, customer engagement that gets me thinking about customer engagement in a non obvious way. Right and really stretch our thinking about customer engagement. And that's the whole point of it, right? Right. Is to get us out of the most obvious, those things are just right in front of our feet about customer engagement or whatever the topic is that we're working on. Well, because a lot of times they're just looking at what their competition is doing. Exactly. So if 
you're just going to do what your competition is doing. They didn't need to hire us. Right. <laughs> That's exactly it. And so, again, it's this idea that, that more and more value is created at, at really interesting, unexpected intersections. And so that when you get something relevant and something um, related like, hey, we're really interested in customer engagement, mm-hmm. but then you know, attached to that Bronx Zoo. So now I'm working in, you know, uh, women's clothing. I want to figure out how to engage my customer better, but what can I learn from the Bronx Zoo now? Right. Like, how can I use that as stimulus? And it's not, we're not going to come back and come up with now uh, zoo-themed anything. Right. It's just that what's something I can distill from that that, that really makes me jump the tracks uh, conceptually. Exactly. And, and really create entirely fresh space. I mentioned opportunity discovery. Yeah. Um, I feel like that's such a great opportunity to um, take a moment and really bring in lots of different perspectives. Yeah. So, you know, if you have the opportunity to... Um, you know, to bring a couple of people in to even talk with you or talk with your team that are completely unrelated, but have a little bit of a string connection. Yeah. So, for example, um, you know, we, if, if, if you're talking about home lighting and coming up with new innovations in home lighting, bring in someone who handles surgical lighting. So yeah. there's a string there because it's still lighting. Yeah. You know, or bring in um, a detective. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, now that's a little bit farther out. But, you know, they're often looking for things and they're looking in the dark. And, you know, that's metaphorical well, even the, and, and literal. Yeah, conceptual illumination. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. I like it. Um, the Again, what we're looking for is, is the deft interweaving of uniqueness and relevance. And so with the unrelated domains, the unrelated stimuli, that's really going to help drive uniqueness. Yep. And what we found is that that um, it seems to be easier to work on relevance. So once we get the stretch from uniqueness, then we, it's usually pretty easy to, get to set about the task of making it more relevant. Mm-hmm. So now that we've got that route here, and we know kind of where we need to land it a little bit better, then we can kind of go about, oh, okay, I see what I can do with that now. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and figuring out kind of where's the intersection between that really cool, interesting thing and an actual consumer need. Yeah. And value is created more and more at these really different, unexpected intersections. Watch out for that first step. It's a doozy. Is there anything that you do that you know, oh, I'm doing it. I'm starting to slide into availability bias. Is there, like, are there any, you're good at, at, at detecting poker tells in other people I know. Because <laughs> we've had this conversation. Are, are there poker tells, do you detect poker tells in yourself? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's actually a poker tell, but yeah, it's more of, you know, a feeling, yeah. right? So, um, you know, you have a lot to do. Yeah. And you're juggling and you're trying to come up with solutions to all sorts of problems. And it is very easy to just say, here's my issue, and then just quickly answer it. And yeah go on about your business. Um, But I think one of the things that I try to do when I catch myself 
is just reach out to somebody. Yeah. You know, often it's you. Yeah. Um, reach out to somebody, talk it through, and then, you know, you have that, I have that, I think I mentioned it before, where it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> now I have to really rethink this. Um, but it, but it is important. It is important to notice. And I have to be honest, it's a lot easier to notice it in other people. Oh, so yeah. I do like the fact that since we've all been embracing, you know, the whole notion of, you know, crushing our cognitive biases, it's great to be around people who will gently remind you if you're, oh, that looks like the availability bias. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think we even talked about it earlier today. Um, so it's definitely easier when other people will mention it to to me, but um, I, I I definitely catch myself doing it, and, and you know you just gotta try to stop and say don't be lazy. Well, you're right about this being a bad idea. Thanks for saying, sir. Well, and that's the great thing about it. So that with this awareness of the cognitive biases, hopefully it brings to each of us uh, a starting point of humility, and so then when we see it coming up in ourselves, and that's really where we ought to put much of the attention and not try to, you know, be about the task of busting others. Uh, so really remembering naive realism, the idea that how I see the world is how the world is, is the biggest illusion mm -hmm. that we suffer from. And we really do need each other that collectively we're in much better shape because individually we're finite. We can only grasp so much of reality. Mm -hmm. And then being curious and inviting other in, uh, others in is really helpful. But knowing that we're, I mean, every day I catch myself. Yeah, I mean, it's so easy to not even realize that you're missing another perspective. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I think sometimes even just saying it out loud is really helpful. I found, you know, I'll yeah. be in conversation and I'll, I'll, it seems kind of stupid, but if I say it out loud, it's yeah. more real. Yeah. So, oh, that must be my availability bias. That makes you have to do something about it. That's right. Yeah. Well, it brings some accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it just it puts it out there on the table. That's good. All right. Um, but then when it does show up, you can just kind of go, okay, cool. I'm on track. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. Um, knowledge needs are different at different stages of innovation. You mentioned uh, particularly with regard to opportunity, uh, discovery, opportunity, identification. It shows up in... Ideation, it seems like the quick, you know, the easy answer is um, excursions and stimulus. Um, so I think that's pretty straightforward. Do you have any other thoughts on availability well, bias during ideation? Well, I guess just to contrast availability bias in opportunity discovery versus ideation. So in opportunity discovery, it's almost like you want to bring in so, like, lots of very disparate things because you're looking for opportunities and you want to figure out what are the ways in, right? So you're gonna go really kind of far out. In ideation, you wanna decide at some point on what ways in you wanna focus on. Yeah. So then once you have a way in, um, you're using stimuli, stimuli to explore, but you're doing it within some kind of a construct. You're doing it within some sort of an objective. So there are some boundaries there. Mm -hmm. So the um, I think that you're trying to combat availability bias in a different way. Yeah. Well, and even there within even there within a given target area, I think it's helpful to have some allergy to cliche, right? 
And so you can still even approach a given target. Even when you have that stimulus and everything, you can still feel this pull toward the proximate. Well, and that's why it's really important yeah. to have really good stimulus because yeah. you don't want to, um, just because you have an objective and just because you have boundaries, it, the natural tendency is to just go really straight on, right? Yeah, exactly. So you really want to stretch. It's just that you're stretching against an objective. So that's yeah. why, I mean, I don't think a lot of people know this because unless you're a facilitator, how much thought you have to put into figuring out what excursion to do for what, yeah, there, you know. Yeah, that's right. There's for a, it's what a, opportunity. It's not just any excursion will work with any target area. Right. There really is some thought behind There is some method to the madness. And and what what we really want to encourage people to do is just really give yourself to the excursion. Yes. Because unless you do that, you are going to have that tug toward the expected, the tried, the true, the cliche. Right. And you really don't want to do that. Because everything that happens once you leave us <laughs> is going to pull you in that direction anyhow. And so you really want to make sure that you're getting out there and that you're looking for all the value out beyond that most obvious horizon right now while we're in this kind of cool space, this safe space to, to do that kind of effort because it just gets more and more difficult later on right. when everyone else is trying to, to uh, make it more operational, make it safer, uh, when all the fear triggers you know, kick in and people are saying, wait, explain that to me again, what's that? You know, so. Right, and I think the other thing about um, an, an ideation session and availability bias is how important it is to just make sure that you're bringing in not only, you know, obviously with us, we bring in creative consumers, but just bringing in a diverse group of thinking people from the client side. Yeah. Especially people who don't work together so closely all the time, and when yeah. they do, split them up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. It's, it's, uh, we hopefully establish. And people get this quickly enough that it really is a safe space, and so you don't have to hang out with your buddy, mm -hmm. you know, so much. You'll see your buddy at some point during the day. You'll get to work with him or her. It's all good, you know. Just but just right now, let's just go get after it. Good. Um, this idea of having different perspectives is really really important because it's back to the idea that individually uh, we're smart only up to a certain point. And having those different perspectives is so helpful because even even with three or four of us, you know, even then we're still finite, but we're less finite. Mm -hmm. You know, we have we have we're taking in more of reality, we're taking in more considerations than would have occurred to any one of us. Uh, just I mean, just think about I mean, life experiences, mm -hmm. you know, where I went to school, what I was doing in fourth grade. You know, yep, preferences. Yeah, exactly. Everything, and that all comes to bear. And so, what was really cool is to bring your whole person to the task. You're not just an R and D manager when you come to work here, but you're an R and D manager who prefers, you know, uh, mountain bikes over road bikes. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and uh, has seen Metallica twelve times. Mm -hmm. You know, does that happen? I guess that happens. <laughs> Mountain bikes and Metallica. Cool. Uh, excellent. So, Beth, availability bias is prevalent enough that it certainly um, does show up 
plenty of other examples out there. So uh, really interesting article, The Psychology of Why 94 Deaths from Terrorism Are Scarier Than mm-hmm. 301,797 uh, Deaths from Guns. Um, this is interesting. We don't, we don't need to get political here. So this is, that's not what this is. But um, for 16 years now, uh, terrorism has loomed very largely on our international uh, discussion and across the globe, maybe not honestly. We get it. We understand it. It's not that that isn't an issue. Uh, but when you just stack up 94 versus 300, you know, almost 302,000, we're, again, it, it reiterates the point that we're not, we're not very good statisticians. So um, what does this mean? Again, we aren't good at assessing likelihoods to us. One versus a thousand doesn't seem like all that different from one versus a million. Why, why does this matter for innovation? Well, I mean, thinking about the, um, the article, you know, so fear strengthens memory. I think you may have mentioned that yeah, earlier and, on, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're going to most readily recall the things that are more, you know, scary and the, the bad experiences, which um, now I'm going to get into negativity bias, but still. Yeah. So in innovation, you know, you're going to fail a lot more then you're gonna win. Yeah. And failure feels horrible. Yeah. And in some cultures, failure is not accepted. No yeah. matter how many times we hear clients say that, you know, they're trying to move into the direction where just as long as you learn something from failure, but it doesn't always actually happen. You know, they don't actually really embrace it always. Um, so, so failure feels awful and fear of failure feels awful. And then you, you become even more risk averse. And, you know, when, when you're trying to do something new, you're going to just remember the bad experience you had when you failed. And, and so what's, what's interesting about this is in, when you consider your own life, any worthy capability you developed, you sucked at initially. Uh, and maybe the conditions were just different, or maybe it's long enough ago, you just forget about your mm-hmm. failures in it, or whatever it is. I don't, I don't know what that is. Or maybe you just had really loving parents, <laughs> or really a really nurturing environment where those failures um, were uh, just supported, smoothed over, whatever it is. But it seems like the most obvious thing in the world. Like, how many times have you been through that cycle? And collectively, how many times have we been through that cycle as a group? I don't know why it doesn't ratchet up uh, to some understanding within a corporation that anything worthy of doing that's new, mm-hmm. we're going to suck at initially. Right. That's never not happened. <laughs> you know, and so it's just it's it's the dangest thing. I just I really don't. That's that's uh, that's not. But again, it's not it's not rational because we're not rational critters. Well, and with individuals also, there's more emotion involved because you want it. Yeah. So even if you're failing at it, if you want it, you're gonna you know want to keep going, and you feel that emotion. And don't don't we want to do good work though? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what are we like? What are we doing with our lives? You know, come on. I mean, I guess that's my wish overall, is that there's enough, 
intent, you kind of go, hey, this is really going to be worth it. Mm-hmm. So let's, you know, in the Marines, evidently, there is this saying, you know, embrace the suck. You know, hmm. anything, anything that's going to be sufficiently um, worthy of doing is going to be hard. And it's really, there are going to be times where you're just going to go, this is horrible. But you know what the objective is. You know, you know the mission you're on. And so you go, of course it's horrible because we're doing new stuff. And we don't have it figured out yet. Well, you know, and the other thing that happens, this is interesting, I just thought of it when we were talking about um, negative versus positive emotions. And if you could make the experience more positive, it'll be more memorable, you know. Yeah. So the other thing happens, which is management will remember that one amazing launch yeah. that got you know, 90% distribution in four (laughs) weeks and every store, you know, put up the displays and all of that. And that positive memory is super available. And so now that becomes the normal though? That becomes, right. Like, why isn't what you're doing, you know? Oh, there's no winning. There's no winning. It's unreasonable. It's unreasonable. All right. Uh, there's this notion, Beth, of something that's called the Village Venus Effect. Do you want, do you want to tell us about what the Village Venus Effect is? Sure. Um, the idea is that um, the most, if, if you're in, in this village and um, the most beautiful girl is in the village, that must be the most beautiful girl in the world because <laughs> you have no other options. You, you, you don't know what else is out there. So, um, you know, the, the availability bias kicks in because there are no rival options um, available. So when you think about that in, you know, in our world, um, if you're not looking elsewhere, you're going to become enamored with what is most readily available to you and what you think is, is working. And there could be something that's way, way better. Yeah. And this kind of reminds me of a quote that I, I really just fell in love with the first time I heard it years ago. There's nothing as dangerous as an idea if it's the only one you have. <laughs> and so we, we start to invest so much into one thing if we don't have more, right? right? And so scarcity, uh, you know, it's, it's supply and demand, right? And so the idea is um, hey, as, as wonderful as that one thing is, we really want to go uh, about the task of uh, devaluing it by coming up with a, with a whole lot more. Not because that's, that, that may still emerge as, as, be, the, winner, as yeah. the winner. Who knows? But let's not be too quick to assume that that's the case. Mm-hmm. Because we, we likely have not explored nearly you know, far and widely enough. Right. And so we want to make sure that it's, it's really easy to succumb to the village Venus effect. You know, we get kind of a pet idea. I think, I don't think any one of us is immune from that. I, I know, no. I, I know I We've do. We've done it here. Well, I did it here. Do, do you remember an early working title for the book? Yes. <laughs> I was, a, I was. But you're happy now. I was convinced <laughs> I was convinced that an earlier working title for the book was going to set the world ablaze and that by now that we would each have our own island in the Caribbean. And uh, it was too clever by half. It, was, it, was gonna, it would take, have taken too much work, 
to explain. To get it. Yeah, I mean, by now I would have already been so tired of saying, well, what the idea behind <laughs> this is, and it just, it would have become just ridiculous. So, yes, um, it's great to have pride of ownership in an idea. What's even better is to have pride of ownership in a hundred ideas, mm-hmm. right? And then with that, you know, the best way to get good ideas is first to get lots of ideas. And, and you can be incredibly smart about picking what goes forward. But I give you credit for something that you do, that I've seen you do often, and I think it's a really good suggestion for other people, is you could get, in, you could become enamored with something, one approach. You force yourself to come up with the other approaches, but then you give it to other people, and you don't tell them which one was your favorite. You tell them that you had a favorite. Yeah, yeah. But you don't tell them which one was your favorite. Oh, no, I, w- I don't want to game it. And then sometimes it works out that, like you said, the yeah. one that you're in love with wins, and sometimes yeah. it doesn't. And in that case, it didn't, but in yeah. other cases, it has. So Well, know. I became persuaded that naive realism is actually a thing. I, 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 uh, even as emotionally uh, invested as I am because of this, this stupid human condition that I suffer from, uh, I still... <laughs> At some point, I'm I'm persuaded by the science. I know that I'm finite. I know that I'm missing significant chunks of reality, and I do want others to weigh in. And I know that if I if I will check my ego, and if I will be humble, as Ed Hess says, humility is the new smart. And I, I I'm much more interested in new smart than I am a pet idea. Mm-hmm. And I and and more to the point, I want us to get to a better place. And if that means, you know, that that thin satisfaction of an early fixation I had, uh, you know, kind of going away, then that's that's great. Mm-hmm. I, I think we need to be willing to do that. And what's, what's good is to have strong feelings loosely held. Nice. Right? And so I think having passion is great and then you want to be a little strategic about when you then bracket that. Yeah, and, and be able to like let it go if other people who happen to have really great input come in and you're like, oh, maybe that maybe this is actually the better way to go. You want to solicit that. You really want to do that. You want to get the strong passion to get some momentum going, but then you, re- you want to go out of your way to get input from others because you know that where then you go from that, from that early momentum, by bringing in others is going, to, is going to end up being much better. So, Beth, there's this quote I'd like to get your, your take on this. The range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice uh, that we fail to notice, there's little that we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. There's a lot there. Let me say it again. The range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice what we, that we fail to notice, there's little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. A lot there. Can we break this down? What, what did that mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think what it means to me is that you are in your own way and you don't even know it sometimes. Yeah. Um, and um, it's, it's a tough one because, again, it sort of talks in circles, but the idea is that 
you don't even know that you're doing this and you don't even know that why things are happening are happening because of what you're doing. So until you notice that some end result isn't working and you take a moment to really think about it or if somebody else comes along and points it out to you, it's never going to change. That's right. You know, um, so I think that acknowledging and understanding what cognitive biases are and how they affect us is a very big step because without that knowledge of things like availability bias and cursive knowledge and all of that, um, we're just going to go down a path. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, and understanding that precisely that, that are with all the, with all the cognitive biases, because they're so entrenched, because they are the echoes of 10,000 generations, our starting point isn't neutral, right? Our starting point is, is below mm-hmm. the baseline. And so just to even to get up to neutral, we have to do some things to overcome that. So um, it, 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 they're called bias, you know, that we are, we are biased. And so to get to even a, a, a better starting point, uh, taking some ste- steps is really important. For me, this idea, this idea of noticing with respect to availability bias, I think is super important. Mm-hmm. I think it's on, on innovators to be more aware. I, 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 kinda, I just kind of feel that. I think if we're not the people who cast a slightly, who work with a slightly wider lens mm-hmm. and who are making an effort to take in a little bit more then who is doing that? Well, and to demonstrate it. To demonstrate, exactly. Without being preachy. Oh, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly, because that gets uh, old. If you can see it happening, stop it happening. Yeah. Whether it's with yourself or with somebody else. Take the moment, realize I'm sitting here by myself deciding something. Did I, did I do a little research? Am I just... Am I researching things to prove what I think should be? Yeah. Now I'm going to, you know, get into uh, get a little toward confirmation, confirmation bias. But these but are, yeah. If you're alone and you're working on something and you're coming up with most what's most readily available and then you say, oh, you know what, let me, let me branch out. Let me see if I can find some other information to really, you know, from other perspectives. But just make sure that you really truly are getting other perspectives and not just trying to find perspectives that are going to confirm what you already think should happen. Perfect, perfect. And, and thanks for bringing that up. We talk about individual cognitive biases. The truth is, to use a term from our friends in healthcare, uh, many of these biases are, uh, here's a fancy term for y'all, comorbid. They show up together. They <laughs> yes. are, and, yes. it's, and it's using disease state language, but uh, some of the effects, uh, that, that's a good metaphor. You know, um, I just want you all to consider that imagination, I think, is a pretty good break, B-R-A-K-E, and maybe B-R-E-A-K as well on, on availability bias. If you're making at least a little effort to exercise imagination, I think that busts you out of availability bias. Availability bias is effortless and automatic. Imagination requires effort, but it's uh, usually pretty fun effort. Yep. And so... Um, you can, you can get out of availability bias. It doesn't have to take too much work. It takes some work. So we hope that's the takeaway for you all. 
by considering a little bit more, by taking just a little more time, it doesn't have to be a whole lot, but taking a little more time to bring a little more thought, a little more consideration, a little more stimulus, you will make better decisions. You're going to have more to play with. And that's what this is all about. We're here to help liberate you to make innovation the great experience that it really should be. This is uh, the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast. My guest has been the illustrious, talented Beth Stores. Beth, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Adam. It was great, great being with you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We'll see you all, folks. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey, y'all. This is Liza, and this is where I break in and I cop to our own cognitive biases. Here's the current list of self-inflicted curse of knowledge references from this part of our podcast. As in the negativity bias episode, which if you haven't gone to listen to, hurry up and go back and listen. You can come back. We'll wait. We name-checked psychologist Daniel Kahneman, but this time we only used his last name. So by Kahneman, we are referring to the psychologist known for his work in behavioral economics and decision-making. He is still the author of Thinking Fast and Slow. By clients, we mean the people and companies who work with ideas to go. Many of them are on the Fortune 500 and Fortune 100 lists. By project, we mean the innovation projects clients hire us for when we spend a few days together generating ideas and crafting solutions. It's either in person or online, and we get a lot done using our innovation process. When Adam and Beth refer to stimuli and exercises, they're talking about activities to keep all the brains in the room energized while generating ideas. They're designed to help spark even more ideas. By ideation, we mean that idea-generating phase of our process where we, we do a lot of ideating. Yeah, it's a lot of idea, ideating, ideation. You get it. It's the first part of a project. By facilitator and co-facilitator, we mean innovation experts from ideas to go like Adam and Beth, who lead clients through our process, usually in pairs, hence the co of the co-facilitator. Um, these people are really smart and they design and plan and execute every phase of our innovation sessions. When we talk about creative consumers associates, we mean articulate, imaginative consumers who we have trained in creative problem-solving techniques. Our projects use these consumers who fit the target demographic for our clients. By executing, uh, we don't mean guillotines. We mean putting something into action and making good innovation happen. By excursions, we mean exercises that help expand a client's thinking on a topic to provide more diverse stimulus to draw from when generating innovative ideas. Role play, which Adam and Beth refer to, is one of these exercises where participants generate ideas from the perspective of a different person, a place, or frame of reference. By opportunity discovery, we mean one of the first phases of that fuzzy front-end development um, that clients can get stuck in. It's to broadly explore marketing opportunities and sometimes without a specific direction in mind, um, hence the discovery part. Uh, and last but not least, Ed Hess is professor with the Darden Business School MBA program, author of 12 books dealing with growth, innovation, learning cultures, 
system, and processes. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. We are ideas to go We love innovation and serving our clients. For more information about us, check us out at www.ideastogo.com as well as outsmartyourinstincts.com. Stay tuned for further explorations and people being liberated to do innovation right on the next episode of the Outsmart Your Instincts podcast.